You're listening to Life Sparring, fighting mediocrity one round at a time. In the blue corner, Ray Adam Johnson is sparring match with a 12-year-old, but still identifying as a Muay Thai practitioner from Hong Kong, your host, Fabian Gruber. In the red corner, not one but two intellectual heavyweights with a passion for identity research. From Auckland, New Zealand, Professor Elizabeth George and Prairaji Raja Jatibajai. This is Life Sparring Round 13. Let's go. So, welcome to Life Sparring. This is today a very ambitious episode, maybe the most ambitious episode of the show yet. Not only have, do I have two guests instead of just one, we are also pretty determined to dive into a topic that is extremely deep, multidimensional, and in some aspects also kind of controversial. We want to talk about identity today. Let me welcome Professor Elizabeth George and Professor Prithviraj Chattopadhyay, who also goes by Raja, but makes it much easier during the show. Those are professors at the Faculty of Business and Management at the University of um, Business and Economics at the University of uh, Auckland, New Zealand. Elizabeth George and I go a little bit back as she was one of my professors during my MBA. And when I reached out to her and asked her about uh, a topic that we maybe could cover in a show, She said that uh, yeah, identity is something she really would uh, enjoy talking about, and that's what we are trying to do. But before we dive deep into the topic, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about uh, your identities. Okay, so so from my name, I I think what's an important part of my identity is from my name, people usually assume that I'm likely to be a Caucasian or a, a white-skinned woman from England, perhaps, or some other English-speaking part of the world. And they're always very surprised to see a, a brown woman of Indian origin show up with this name. So I have this identity that is linked to sort of being different from what I look like and what people expect me to be. And then I have to explain the whole background of where I'm from and how I've got a name like this and, and so on. And so it's always been interesting to me about who people are, where they come from, what they look like and how much they fit other people's expectations of what they should be like. But as Fabian said, I'm now a professor of management in Auckland, but I've lived in many different parts of the world. And I think all of that is also part of my identity. Yeah, I guess. I would start out by saying that you know I was born and uh, brought up as a child in in Calcutta, Kolkata as it's now known. But my family also traveled a lot, lived in different places when I was growing up, and then also when I left home many many years ago, I think I've left lived more time outside India now that I than I lived in India, in the U.S., in Australia, in Hong Kong in New Zealand, in the UK. So it's difficult to think about my identity without considering all these influences. But also an important part of my identity is that I am a professor of management. So, and I've been doing that for over a couple of decades now. Right. When we talk about identity, how do you define identity? So for me, the simplest form and maybe also quite an elegant one is that identity is the mental model that we form of ourselves. So if we talk about individual identity, what do you use as a working model for describing identity? The simplest one I like is like if I was to talk about it in class, I would simply ask my students to say, who am I? and write down five things they can think about how to answer that question. And that's really identity. It's who you are. And some of it comes from your own background, and some of it's uh, imposed on you by others. And it's some negotiated uh, mix of things. I would say the same. It's the who am I, the answer to the question, who am I? And that's that's a fascinating topic because... When we talk about like, who are you? It's always about this nature versus nurture argument, but then also about how much control do you have over your life? And I think in terms of identity, that's quite interesting because there are elements about your identity that you actually can change. And it seems also that the spectrum of identities that we can choose or are more often to choose now is is, is broadening. So I think in 
if you look back in time and say in the 1960s or so in the US, you were Republican or Democrat, you were Catholic or Protestant, you were black or white, but you didn't talk about gender identities or even even feeling as if you probably see yourself more associated to a different uh, race than how you look like uh, in the first place. So is this something that is really like a recent development? Do you see that as a, as a trend? And where does this come from? Like, how did we get to this point that we are like much more liberate in defining our own identity? I, I think we always had them, Fabian. I think I didn't, you know, religious identities were the cause of many wars over many, many centuries. They were strong, people identified strongly with their religious group or with their tribe, or with their family. So there have been ways in which people have answered the who am I question and have been willing to fight others for this thing. Perhaps the difference now is we may, and I don't know, Raja, what do you think about this? But I think now we may even have psychological aspects of, I feel like I am this, or I'm more this and less that, which maybe earlier were more clear-cut distinctions. But I'm not sure, maybe historically people have had this sort of more nuanced, multidimensional identities. But I think we've always had differences. We've always defined ourselves in terms of something. We may talk about gender identity now, but there were earlier notions of what females did or didn't do and the idea of mothers, what mothers did or didn't do. So they didn't talk about gender identity, but they acted as if it was an identity and people had to behave consistent with that identity. Yeah, I would sort of elaborate on that a little bit and, and sort of take a step back and say, well, you know, there are really three different aspects to your identity. So there's the personal identity, which is sort of who you are as a unique individual. And you think of yourself as clever or artistic or sporty or whatever. It's all these individual qualities. And so that's the personal identity. And there is the, the social identity, which is the identity that you derive from which groups you belong to. And that's what Elizabeth's really talking about in terms of the, the conflicts and so on, that a lot of that has arisen from these membership in different social categories. And the third one is the sort of relational identity. You're a father or a son, uh, you're a spouse or you're a teacher with a particular student. Uh, you have a teacher-student relationship, which is very strong. So those are all sort of more relational identities. You relate to somebody and that creates the identity. So the social identity where, where you have this issue that you're talking about, that we seem to be exploring it more to be, in, it is becoming conflicted or confusing and these, these ideas that you're bringing up. I think some extent it's possible that, that that is happening. First of all, let me say that identity is linked inextricably to status. And inevitably, when different identity groups coexist, some, some have higher status and some are given lower status. And the higher status people usually have a certain set of beliefs about the lower status categories and they have to live by those. So Elizabeth talked about what are women expected to do? And some of those expectations were set by men. And when these status differences and this particularly plays out in organizations which and society in large as well. When we have these sets of expectations and they are strictly adhered to, then everybody sort of knows what the rules are and they play along. But these days we have movements like the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and so on, where some of the traditionally lower status categories are challenging the rules and saying that enough is enough. So... But to, to that extent, I, I do believe that we are moving into some more conflicted territory. But now because of this challenging that is going on with identity groups, the lower status groups, the groups that were accorded lower status in much of society are challenging the rules. And that also helps with the exploration that's going on. And I was, when I was preparing for the show, I was thinking what role social media also plays because with social media, we are actively showing off our identities much more, right? I mean, previously, before the internet hit us all, 
your identity didn't travel so far. Yeah? You identified in your profession and locally you had kind of something that assigned you, but a lot of was also kind of you were who you were, right? Because people kind of know you because they know your neighbors and they work with you. While now we are representing ourselves much more. Like if I look at my LinkedIn profile, then of course I'm very selective of what I show about myself and how I try to represent myself and what identity I try to forge in a way. Of course, I mean, I think I'm not kind of misrepresenting myself. I don't think that I kind of uh, create a, a very unrealistic picture of myself, but I'm selective to portray myself in a certain direction. And then you have like other profiles like Facebook or Instagram, where you maybe have other aspects um, of your identity that you are putting more in the, in the forefront. And Yeah, they are not always immediately fact-checked, right? You can kind of uh, post quite successfully on Instagram as a very successful influencer who travels the world and have actually a quite miserable life, but you're not talking about it. And I think that this is an aspect that also increases to some extent the freedom that you have in like putting your identity together, maybe even to an extent that you start believing certain things that maybe are really far from, from actual reality. I, I think that's really interesting because as you were talking, I was wondering, is the stuff we put out there on social media very different from if you were in the village and you put on makeup before you left your house so that people always saw you looking a particular way, but really you looked something else. And is the issue just one of reach, that it's a lot more people who see this image of you that you want to portray? But as you continue talking, I wondered if the differences that the ability of people to challenge this is decreased because you put something out on LinkedIn and there will be hundreds of people who've never met you and have no idea if this is really you or not. So this image that you put out gets challenged much less. And then consequently, you might start believing more of it yourself versus earlier, if you lived in a village and you went out and you told all the people in the village that this is who I am. And they were like, no, we know you, Fabian. This is not really you. We know who you really are. Then your ability to forge this identity and believe it's true yourself is far more limited. So I wonder if that's what social media has done is it's enabled us to believe in these created identities. I'm, I'm not sure. I do think so. And I think not just social media, but game avatars. I think taking it one step further and you live entire lives in these games and some people spend an awful lot of time there. So that's part of it. And that definitely has an impact on how you portray yourself in those platforms, has, has an impact on your own identity. And there are other situations which are connected where, where I've studied this in a paper on, on call centers. And there are all these call center people were pretending to be someone in the West uh, where they were all based in India and they all got trained in their accents. And you probably talked with them, right? When you have a problem with your computer or you have, uh, they're trying to sell you something over the phone and they're all pretending like they're sitting in the next building or whatever, but they're really far away and they all have different names and so on. And when you chat with these people, some of them are really affected in the, how they portray themselves at home as a result of this uh, pretend life that they lead. So I do believe that social media has an impact on how we're looking at ourselves. And it also pushes you to do so, right? Because at the end, I mean, identity is always also like a game of inclusion and exclusion, right? You identify with something that also means you yeah, do not identi identify with something else. And I think that this is, of course, that's the game that social media is, right? It's all about finding people who like what you do so that they give you likes and uh, you get more popular in this circle. And that's, of course, kind of a mechanism that also kind of pushes you a little bit to be more aggressive going out with your identity, right? And saying, hey, this is uh, who I am and join my course and uh, who else is in the same spot, etc. And I think that this is maybe something that yeah, really is to that extent something new to, to society. Yeah, and I think it's this kind of thing has led to some identity polarization because we all hear about echo chambers or because of the algorithms we connect to like-minded people. 
a lot more. And so we reinforce each other's identity. And on the social media, we are not as much exposed to diversity as we might be other in real life in many places. So that leads to a certain dynamic where we have more extreme representations and, and beliefs about yourself and others around you, and uh, which are positive and, and extremely negative views about others who are different from you, who are not represented in your social media circle. And at the same time, of course, social media definitely helped to foster this movement that you said of uh, lower status uh, groups to find like-minded people, yeah. people who are in the same situation and, and to connect via social media. I think that this is also, uh, that's, that's the positive aspect of it yeah. to some extent. Actually, I was also thinking, Raja, correct me if this is wrong, but I think in your study that you talked about the call center people, the ones who went home and they derived some positive sense of self from this make-believe world. So it's the, the, that the delusion helped what we would call a delusion, pretending that you're Sam from Southampton or whatever, when you're actually somebody sitting in, in Calcutta. But it helped you feel better about yourself so that there was a spillover into your everyday life that was positive and made you more confident. And didn't you find something like that, that there was one group of people for whom this fake life was actually a good spillover into their real life? Yes, there, there were some positives that came out of that. And, and this is something that, that we find in much of identity research, that if you believe that the status that is given to the higher status categories in your situation, whoever they might be in the U.S., for example, it would be the white Anglo-Saxon male, and in India, it could be the Brahmin, the Hindu Brahmin, and, and so forth. If you believe that the people who are given the higher status in your particular context deserve it legitimately and it's unlikely to change in the near future, then one way of getting higher status for yourself, and this is all driven by the, the need to feel good about ourselves, is to sort of take on the values and beliefs of the higher status categories and to act in those ways and be accepted by them and so on. So, yes, so what, Elizabeth, uh, you were talking about is sort of an outcome of this process. But there were some positives for them in that regard. And that happens in, in many contexts in life. Yeah. So I was sort of connecting it back to what Fabian was saying, that it's not all bad. Being able to construct an identity is not necessarily a bad thing or delusional. It can also connect you to other people, give voice. Lots of different good things can come from social media, being able to create an identity for yourself. Yeah, so social media can give you the reach to collect as a community. And if you are given typically lower status in your community, you can connect with other lower status people and formulate a movement. So you, you have much more chance of having the Me Too or the Black Lives Matter movement in the age of social media because it is facilitated by that. And that has positive effects for the entire community for the entire category that is uh, uh, banding together to collectively improve their status. But the example from my study was sort of individuals crossing the boundary. One is much more of an individual who's sort of turning his or her back on their original community and getting status in that way, whereas the other one is trying to overturn the status inequalities that have existed. And both of these can be facilitated by social media in different ways. Maybe related to, to that study and, and your findings, it's a super difficult topic, I guess, and, and like a own topic in itself. But how do you see the, the relationship between mental health uh, or, or happiness maybe in general and identity so what makes us happy with ourselves like that's that's for me it's kind of a very interesting uh, aspect because you just mentioned that people have on the same situation and they can react also very different to it like for one person they they maybe like really suffer from identity crisis they don't know who they are anymore living a day work identity and and having their their private identity and for others they it maybe increases their happiness because they take confidence out of it and and they feel maybe better about themselves and yeah that's for me a very interesting topic because i think we all know that identity is one of the biggest puzzle pieces to be happy i mean if you identify with a company or with a job 
has a huge influence if you like your job and if you like yourself doing that job. And, and we have this in other aspects of our life too, right? There's a really interesting concept that people have written about called optimal distinctiveness. So you, you want to try and craft an identity that is similar enough to other people that you belong. So in a herd of zebras, you're a zebra also, so you belong. But you're different enough that you're distinct there too. So you feel special-ish. And that's the sweet spot, perhaps, where you feel happy that you're sufficiently connected to everybody else, but sufficiently different to stand out. And I don't know if that's the place of joy that you're talking about of when you craft this whole description of who am I. You have things that tie you and things that individualize you. Maybe that's what we're all aiming for. I, I agree with that. But I, I would also add that we've been just talking about happiness and where do we get it from, particularly everyone sort of hemmed in by COVID and we're all uh, stuck in our own little places. Even here in New Zealand, we were just talking about how it could be a lonely little island and so on. But life is pretty good, but sometimes you do feel down. So I think that comes from lack of being master of your fate, lack of control. And so social identity theory, which where a lot of this work that we do is based on, talks about two things that make us want to identify with a particular organization or a particular football team. So you, if that organization is doing well, then you're basking in the sort of reflected glory and, and you feel happy. But the other part of it is that that being a part of that organization makes you feel that, okay, this is how I should behave in this organization. If the norms are clear, the uncertainty is reduced. And as a part of that organization, you know what to do, how to inter interact with others. So that also can make you happy. So I think we're happiest when our identities allow us to achieve both of these things. Unfortunately, when we are looking for more positive, sometimes we have to put up with uncertainty. Or when we are looking for certainty, we, we often have to sacrifice the positives in, in many of our life situations. So I think the, the, the sweet spot would be one where we can combine both. And I think maybe the COVID anxiety deals with this uncertainty element that we have in our identities. Because now as we're forced to work from home, away from our workplaces, in our homes, doing work that we're uncertain about. There's so much uncertainty around us in so many domains that that may be where this lack of happiness happens. So even if you're trying to craft your identity of yourself as an employee, well, what does that mean when you're just a little square on a Zoom box and you're doing your work but on a Zoom screen, you're just one little square and you're doing your work and nobody sees you and you don't see anyone. And it's very hard. There's a great deal of anxiety that is created and uncertainty. And that might be why people are struggling now, that we, we don't know how to define ourselves in this new world or we're struggling to figure out how to define ourselves in this new world. I think like this is a very interesting topic also. like If I think about it, like this whole working from home situation And the identification with your employer, your your job, which is for most people a large part of, of their identity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I had I know people who changed their job during the pandemic and they switched from working from home for one organization to working from home to another organization and they barely felt a difference right. because it's the same desk, the same, yeah, like everything that makes companies different was not really uh, very intangible. Right. And that's very fascinating, I think, a very fascinating experiment that we would have had a hard time to set up if we would not have forced Right, to. right. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. I mean, this is kind of off topic in a sense, or maybe it is so I don't know where it fits in. But somebody was saying to me that if you look at a Zoom screen, when you have a meeting, everyone is exactly the same size, whether they're the CEO or the lowest person on the team. And so in a sense, just the way technology is set up has equalized people more. So it's allowed for more voices to be heard in a meeting than would have been heard in a real in-person meeting. So it's made some elements of identity, if you want to think about it, less salient because we're all equal sort of on the, on the Zoom screen. I thought, oh, that's 
that's kind of interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I had noticed that in my online classes, people who were quieter in person spoke up more in the online class because they had mechanisms for speaking up. So they could put something in the chat function or they could raise their hand or they could do other things that in class they wouldn't have done. So it's interesting that technology may have changed aspects of how we behave and then possibly this links to identity and how we think about ourselves. Raja, you have a you have a frown on your face. Do you not agree with what I'm saying? No, I, I, I do agree. But I was thinking back to a study that we did where we were looking at gender diversity effects in, in scientists' teams. And the women who were, when they were surrounded by men, they, they felt they experienced more conflict and they were not happy in those male-dominated teams. The men didn't feel quite so much because they were the dominant gender and they were quite clearly the the higher status category in that organization. Now, the interesting thing that links back to what Elizabeth said was that these effects all disappeared when they were virtual teams who didn't really interact with one another. So this data were collected before sort of the pre-Zoom conditions, pre-Skype conditions even. So they couldn't see each other. So they couldn't see each other. And so when they couldn't see each other, the, the gender effects disappeared. I can imagine like also the physical component of it, right? So there's there's often, of course, kind of like a physical difference between kind of the imposing <laughs> tall CEO and maybe like like a young female employee. And then you have kind of seating order, right, for those meetings. I mean, just yeah, like normally like the, the young people, maybe they don't even have a seat at the table. Maybe they sit in the second row and there's a physical barrier to, to actively participate in a meeting. That's, that's really interesting. I saw that you recently did a, a study on the effects of salary um, disparities in, in teams. And for me, that was, it's also kind of related to the topic in a sense as like accepting status and finding in a way your, your rank or your, your order in a, in a system also plays, plays a role right, in setting your own identity. I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about this because I, I found it quite, quite interesting or the results were at least nothing I would oh, have expected like this. So I think maybe what you're reacting to is a lot of people think if people have different pay grades, then they should just not like, why would I like to work with somebody who's off a different pay grade? But what we found was that actually when people work, others who are different from them in terms of pay grade, it's easier for them than if they work with people who are similar But I think, I, I mean, I, I will leave Raja to say more things about that study, but there's one point that I want to make, which is that pay grade is an interesting sort of dimension to look at because it's something that is often seen to be legitimate, that organizations set pay grades based on levels of skill or contribution to the organization or something. They have a system that most people who are in the organization buy into the system and say, okay, it makes sense that you would have a person who needs this level of specialty gets paid more than a person who needs some other level of specialty. So when you have a system that people ex consider to be legitimate, then having differences actually is good because you know exactly how to relate. You don't have to compete with everyone. The status system is set up and everyone accepts it and it's right. It's when you have either an illegitimate system where I don't accept why somebody is higher status than me that you have problems, or you have a legitimate system and now we're all equal, then we have to jockey for among ourselves for establishing relative dominance with each other because we're equal. So I think the counterintuitive thing in the study is that people were like, why would they be happy working with others who have at a different pay grade? Well, it's because this was an instance where the pay grade was legitimate. And so they actually saw these legitimate differences as helping to reduce uncertainty in terms of how to behave and et cetera, et cetera. Raja, have I described that right? I just wanted to make the legitimacy point really clear. I think that that's, that, that's absolutely right. And pay grade is generally because it's sort of linked to skills and education and experience. There, It's sort of seem to be legitimate and the status distribution and resource distribution in organizations based on this tend to be accepted 
by and large, by employees, although there may be the odd one where you don't agree, but by and large, it, it does seem to work out. And you compare and contrast this with, let's say, men versus women or majority ethnicity versus minority, and, and those are much more likely to be regarded as illegitimate sort of status distribution hierarchies. And so when you put together people who are different in ethnicity or gender or even age, things which are salient like that, those can have negative uh, effects. But pay grade, you reduce uncertainty. That's what we found, that when you put together people of different pay grades, they've experienced less uncertainty on how to interact with each other. So there were some who were clearly in charge and others followed. And, and this, in turn, made them happier. They identified more with the group and they were less likely to leave it and, and they performed better even. Sort of going on the football analogy, if you all know your position in the team, it's much easier to play than if you're just 10 guys chasing after a ball and then you're all pushing each other to, to get that ball because you don't know who's supposed to do what. So in this instance, we're saying that the, a legitimate pay grade difference helps to clarify everyone's role and who relates to who and so on. So there's much less uncertainty. But if you have a system where there's just a whole bunch of people put together and say, for example, we take gender as the thing and then the men try to to be the bosses and the women are like, well, who made you the boss in this situation? And it's seen as illegitimate. Then there's just uncertainty for everyone concerned because now there's it's sort of contested terrain. And that's what makes it hard. So I think what was interesting was difference is not a problem if the basis for the difference is accepted. Difference is a problem when the basis of difference is contested. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. And I think that's that's something that would make it even interesting to really be quite proactive with some salaries and maybe even have them like, I mean, we have this debate in every company that I join, like how transparent are you with salaries? I think I'm right now in a company that is kind of more transparent than other companies. Chinese companies, normally it's it's all top secret. But what I learned as a manager is that you can always safely assume that all your staff knows everyone's salary because people talk and people compare and when there's a race, people ask, and how much did you get more? And yeah, I think I always say, like my mantra is always the, the copy machine mantra. I, I want to have a salary structure that, that in case that anybody ever leaves the complete payroll in the copy machine by accident, um, there's no revolution on the next uh, day in the office, right? So that's, uh, but I think it's it's quite interesting, and I think it's also interesting because there were companies that tried other models that tried also to have, like for example, to pay everybody the same salary, and like what I heard uh, that didn't work uh, particularly well, and that might be exactly that reason that it also, to some extent, leveled the playing field so much that that nobody knew anymore what their role is, and and yeah, they lose a little bit of their identity as part of the the team, maybe. Yeah, it sort of becomes a bit more like like the Soviet situation where everybody was a part of the, the collective and no matter what people did, they never got ahead. And that, of course, demotivated. So completely flat uh, salary structure would have a similar effect to that. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the absence of an established hierarchy, people will create one. That might not be pretty. It might be ugly what is created. So we talk a lot about identity in the modern context, identity at work, identity influenced by the COVID crisis. But I was wondering is where does identity come from, from an evolutionary perspective? What is the original use of the concept why is it so important for us was it to hold the tribe together or to like specify your role within the tribe is there any research on it or any hypothesis well i i mean i think you're perfectly right that it has uh, something to do with distinguishing my tribe from your tribe and i would totally from the current research say that it's so easy to create this sort of in-group versus out-group that it's definitely something that's hardwired into uh, human psyche and, and it probably came from there, but I don't know the evolutionary research as such. But definitely there are both parts of it. I agree with what you brought up, that uh, there is this, first of all, that holding the tribe together and secondly, 
the idea of distinguishing roles within the tribe and bo- both are uh, equally important in making the tribe successful and it and we can extrapolate from that into current day situations i i just want to add one thing that there were some early studies done in the 70s maybe even the 60s where they just artificially created groups i think those were in the 1950s yeah oh even the 50s yeah they artificially created groups and these artificial groups then formed this in-group and out-group relationship with each other it shows you how powerful this categorization is of people that once you tell people you are x then they really hold on to that identity of being x and part of the tribe of x and they're like all other x's but they're very different from other y's and therefore they behave towards other y's as if they are completely different creatures and that that is quite quite an interesting thing i also think that maybe and and neither of us are experts in this but there's probably some research in cognitive psychology about how people categorize and i think it's even true across species they're able to recognize members of their species and differentiate from members of other species and so on so i i think like well just said it is a hardwired thing well i mean not just species i would say like primates for example recognize members of their own band and then they have fights across bands of primates so it, it is something that is hardwired in that sense and in terms of this group identification i remember this classroom exercise i've done it i think more than once where you create this this different tribes with different languages and then you kind of have each tribe visit each other and trying to figure out and you relatively quickly form like a very strong bond for your own tribe and other tribe is weird and uh, has very strange <laughs> cultures and and rights and it's yeah. quite interesting yeah yeah and that's not even real and doesn't have any major consequences and yet these affiliations form so strongly right you can create that in a classroom imagine what happens in real life i mean as the, the milton uh, prison experiment right? yeah. that's that's kind of like uh, still a lab setting in a way but with dire consequences after a relatively short time yeah interesting and and in terms of flexibility like is there research on how often people change their identity i mean it's clear that for example parenthood is like a big driver right so like as soon as you are a parent then suddenly yeah, it becomes normally part of your identity that you are a father or mother but is there like general research how flexible people are with their identity well i mean i think people have uh, multiple identities and some are more sort of stable over time so your identity as a man versus a woman versus non-binary wherever you are there is some fluidity there but there's also stability across time and similarly your identity as you being a german me being coming from india or wherever there are those identities are are fairly stable across time but then you also get identity for example member of an organization and you change your organization your identity changes or you, you really have a stable identity and something happens like a critical event and your identity might change for example you you really believe in a, a particular profession like maybe with the, the catholic church there's so much negative stuff that's come out of it and and those sorts of those sorts of information might you might take a hit To, to your identity as as a catholic and that might other change an otherwise stable identity so that's one way of thinking about flexibility versus change in terms of the content of that identity or the kind of identity that 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 you have but there is also another way of thinking about identity changes salience of identity so we have multiple identities and some of them are more salient at some points of time and it's usually the presence of someone who is not from our social category that makes a, a social identity for example to be salient so if imagine that you're part of a big organization and you find people from other organizations you have to meet them you know let's say customer groups or whatever and then your organization is identity is salient but if there are no outsiders in that situation maybe your identity is marketing versus finance 
becomes more salient. Now, if there is nobody else in, from other departments, then maybe senior versus junior becomes more salient. So the salience depends uh, a lot on the uh, sort of the, the presence of uh, somebody from outside the social category. But also one thing to think about, I, we talked earlier about what function does identity have? And we talked about how it helps you to gain more certainty, it reduces the uncertainty you experience. It helps to clarify things for you about how you behave and, and so on. It helps you feel good about yourself. I think identity also plays a role in keeping you stable. So you will have a whole set of identities, but together they give you some form or some stability. And so you probably won't have wildly contradictory identities or wildly changing identities because human beings also need some form of stability of sense. Otherwise you sort of lose that core of who you are. So I think that while the content of the identity might change or slower than others and the salience might differ, there's also a core that sort of stays relatively constant just to keep you sane, if you want, for want of a better way of saying it. I would add, add, add to that that people who have more complex identities, so you, you identify with multiple groups, you have multiple aspects of your personal identity that are important to you, you have multiple relational identities, all of those things, those people are, are mentally in a, in a better place because you're not sort of reliant on one aspect of yourself to be stable, to be happy. That's, that's, I always think is very critical with people, for, for example, who identify very heavily with physical attributes, right? If, if me being like, if I'm a young woman and uh, being beautiful is my main identity, then this is pretty bad because it, it has a timestamp on it to some extent, yeah? attractiveness normally at one point in time. And that's, I think, and the same for professions, right? I mean, how many professional athletes have a major problem transitioning into life after their career because they identify as an athlete and have, have problems to find something that can fill that gap that they, they have. Right? Yeah, and, and it's so difficult for them because they, they have had to do that in order to be successful. Then suddenly you lose it all in one shot. Yeah. Yeah. And with professional athletes also, it's others treat them in a particular way because they are a professional athlete. And then when they are no longer that, even others don't know how to deal with them. And that probably links to what we talked about earlier with identity. It's not just how you think about yourself. It's how others also react to you in that image of yourself. Good. I think we covered already a lot of ground. I think one, one last question that I have would bring us a bit uh, full circle. I mean, both of you are prof professors in management, so also your research and your teaching is mostly about the organizational context. So what can organizations, companies do really to foster identification with the company? I think that, that this is an important part of the alignment in a, in a company. And um, also it helps a lot with um, keeping the, the, the staff lowering turnover. Yeah. What in, in your experience, what are the main points that, that companies can do to foster this? That's a good question. <laughs> Because especially now with companies not wanting to hang on to people forever and ever. So you may not want them to be deeply, deeply identified where they're devastated when you have to kick them out of the organization. But I, but I think that the, the question is maybe flip it around and say, how can you help to align membership within the organization with whatever the person's important facets of their identity? So for example, now after COVID, a lot of people are saying, We want more flexibility. We want to work at home more. And maybe part of it is because through the lockdowns and all that that people experienced, they started appreciating other parts of themselves, their, maybe their family life or other things. And so for an organization to stay attached or to keep these people attached needs to do things that facilitate these other aspects of the employee's identity. So it doesn't get in the way of that. I mean, maybe the issue is not of actively fostering identity, identification with the organization, but actively ensuring that the person can retain a positive sense of self through their association with the organization. I would say that 
that the organization should recognize that and and this is key part of, of the idea of diversity and inclusion that's taken off uh, so much these days that there are unique parts to the to the individual that should be recognized as well as fostering sort of the organizational identity of the person and what i think elizabeth you were mentioning was that well that uh, unique individual part may be more based around the home or the local community and maybe the organization can help to not get in the way of that by allowing more flexible working and so on but at the same time to to people do appreciate belonging to something that is bigger than themselves so the key is to therefore to, to find a balance where maybe the values of both are respected the organizational values are respected but also the the values of working from home the local community and the organization works to to minimize the the kind of conflict between these situations and then maybe people will want to work more for that organization good so i think this was like i think we covered uh, my questions basically did we miss from your perspective um, anything out that is important do you still have something that we should cover i can't think of anything else i just think that this topic or thinking about identity is something we all need to keep doing because it's it is central i i think the three of us just on this in this conversation we've all been born in one country we live in another country we work with people from other countries uh, and this is going to become more and more prevalent that people will meet others who are different from themselves and this can give rise to conflict or it can give rise to lots of good things and i think that conversations about identity and recognizing how other people define themselves understanding that better will probably result in lots of more positive ways of interacting so i i, I just think this is a conversation that needs to keep on going yeah and and i think as academics we need to keep exploring different aspects of identity so i don't know if it might be a little bit technical but one of the things that that interests me is this idea of more surface what has been called surface level diversity with sort of things which are apparent on the surface like your ethnicity or your gender versus deeper diversity such as your personality and this is a very loose kind of way of covering it and it doesn't really help us to think about things which fall in the middle like how senior you are in the organization that's also can be a part of diversity or what your age is not not always apparent on on your you know you can't always distinguish clearly or which function you belong to marketing or finance you can't always so it's a loose way of thinking about these all these uh, ways of diversity and i want to work on on having an easier way to combine these things and to be able to talk about all of these ways of diversity that makes more sense to people and to be able to tackle these forms of diversity more comprehensively which we don't do currently a, a very good job of so that's sort of where i think the research needs to go there is some movement in this area but in terms of fault lines people talk about but it is something that i think needs a lot more work i think that's a very interesting topic because um, i mean i think about this a lot because i'm building a team at the moment um, relatively from scratch um, for a bigger organization and i have a lot of freedom in assembling the team having finding the right mix of people on so many different scales is quite important like you try to find i always look try to kind of think in terms of a skill matrix and you have you hire people for their their primary job and there you maybe want to have some specialists but then you also see like the whole team kind of as a accumulation of skills and you try to be as as broad as possible you want to have like one person that's maybe like the mathematician and one is the excel specialist and one has more eye for aesthetics and now so that you at the end like through kind of cross contribution you get the best result and that's that's i think very related to what what Roger just said like introverts versus extroverts and that's that's it's not as easy as it sounds because of course if you have only extroverts it works quite well because they all can kind of scream at each other and nobody feels bad about it if you have like 
only a few introverts and some extroverts, then it might tip kind of and the introverts don't get a word in, etc. So you need to, to balance this out. To, on one hand, make sure that you are diverse enough and at the same time still have somehow a culture that also works and is efficient and uh, everybody feels identifies with i think that's that's really that's really tricky because we know kind of these extreme examples on one end like i don't know often like consultants bankers they're often very homogeneous or traditionally very homogeneous they are all kind of white males wear the same suit brands have the same haircut and uh There's then often also not much diversity in thinking. Yeah, at the same time, you can easily end up with a very chaotic group where people are unhappy and not feeling the right fit because yeah, your overall culture is kind of maybe too much of a mix of everything. And then the additional problem when you talked about introverts and extroverts, Raja and I were doing a study and we've run into this trouble that with introverts especially, if they don't speak up, We don't know if it's because they're introverts or they have nothing to contribute. So we're making attributions of in the absence of information. And that's an additional complication with these things that Raja was talking about, the deep level characteristics. Well, then I think we have um, covered a lot of ground today. And as Elizabeth um, said previously, At the end, it's, we didn't expect that we can cover the whole topic and solve all questions around identities in, in a single show. It's for sure something that has to be ongoing. Research has to continue and our own search for identity has to continue. But I think we had a very interesting discussion and I learned a lot uh, from it. So thank you very much, Elizabeth and Roger. And I hope we do another uh, one of these episodes, maybe one day when you have... Uh, new research uh, on an interesting topic. I'm, I'm very happy to explore it with you. Sure. Thanks, Fabian. It was a very enjoyable conversation. Yeah, thanks, Fabian. Thanks for having me part of this podcast. Thank you very much. This was Life Sparring Round 13, Identity Research with Professors Elizabeth George and Priviraj Raja Chattopadhyay. As usual, I'm your host, Fabian Gruber. Live Sparring is produced by Thomas Latter. Intro and outro beat are by my Kissy producer. More info about Live Sparring and this episode in particular, including links, gadgets, resources mentioned in the show, you can find at livesparring.com slash podcast. Live Sparring with a hyphen. If you identified with today's show, please subscribe and leave a like wherever you're getting your podcast from. I hope you join us again for the next round of Live Sparring. Until then, stay healthy, keep your hands up and protect yourself at all times.